Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have bad, bad, and bad martinis for conservatives today. Maybe a splash of crazy in the last one. Uh, Jim, we are also sponsored today by ZipRecruiter, which is appropriate because once we get through our three stories today, you're certainly going to come to the conclusion there's a lot of people who need to hire new people for different jobs. I uh, wish we could in the U.S. Senate and for the, uh, the leadership in Venezuela. But uh, we are sponsored by ZipRecruiter. And right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. Much more on that a little bit later in the podcast. Jim, we'll get to Venezuela in our last two martinis, but we have to start today with the disgrace that took place on Monday on the floor of the United States Senate. That's where Ben Sass, Republican from Nebraska, was bringing up his bill for a vote that would essentially require doctors to provide the same medical care for babies who are delivered after surviving an attempted abortion, that those babies deserve the same care as any other patient, and they cannot be left to die. Well, the Democrats, unfortunately, have decided that that is somehow anti-abortion, even though it would be taking place after the baby is outside of the mother. You've got folks like Senator Patty Murray of Washington, according to Real Clear Politics, saying that the measure would force women to accept, quote, care that may directly conflict with your wishes at a deeply personal, often incredibly painful moment in your life because politicians in Washington decided their beliefs mattered more than yours. Again, the baby's already been born. Maisie Hirono says it would provide care that is unnecessary or even harmful to patients. Which patients? In the end, the vote was 53 to 44 in favor of it, but it was a procedural vote. You had to get to 60. Only three Democrats voted uh, in favor of this. Uh, Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Doug Jones of Alabama. Three Republicans didn't make it to the vote, uh, two of them because, at least, because the, the, of flight delays and so forth. Tim Scott, who said he would absolutely have voted for it. Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, who would have voted for it. And we certainly hope Lisa Murkowski would have voted for it, but we don't know. Uh, in the end, Jim, a lot of times I'll quote you and one of your guest hosts is here. I'll quote one of your guest hosts today, Alexandra DeSanctis. Uh, she tweeted last night, Democrats affirm tonight that the right to abortion isn't actually about reducing a human being's worth to his size or location. It's about whether or not that human is wanted by its mother. Abortion is the right to kill an unwanted child, no matter how old or where it is. First of all, I wish Alexandra were here to sub in for me, uh, since this really is her bread and butter and, and driving passion issue. We can now safely say, I think it's absolutely indisputable, the Democratic Party is the extremist party on abortion. And I do not use that term lightly, not just because of this vote and the fact that so few Democrats uh, were willing to vote for, you think about it, probably the most, the single most innocuous, uh, limited, small scale, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. You don't want to permit this style restriction on abortion. Uh, here and I just want to, there's a, the other thing this came out ironically the same day as a poll came out it was commissioned by the Knights of Columbus but you see the terms pro-life and pro-choice thrown around and most Democrats call themselves pro-choice the majority of Republicans characterize themselves as pro-life but I really think those terms don't do justice because I think my, my first suspicion is a lot of Americans don't actually know what our abortion laws are um, and they don't really know where they should be aligning on this issue now if you ask people 
do you believe that abortion should be available to a woman at any time during its pregnancy? According to this new study, well, it's not the Knights of Columbus themselves who are doing this study. They hired the pollster. It's a reliable poll. 13% of Americans last month, I guess earlier this month, said uh, abortion should, should be available to a woman at any time during pregnancy. Now you go all the way in the other direction, saying that abortion should never be permitted under any circumstances. 17% of Americans hold that view. And the vast majority of Americans are somewhere in the middle. Uh, 8% believe that it should only be allowed during the first six months of pregnancy. But then really, all, you know, as, when you add up this second group, there are this, these kind of other categories that add up to a, a pretty solid majority. Um, 22% should believe it should only be allowed during the first three months of pregnancy, which would represent a you know, much dramatic change from our current laws. Um, 29% believe abortion should only be allowed in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. Uh, 12% believe that it should only be allowed to save the life of the mother. And then I said that's 17. So you add up the, those last four categories, you end up with close to 80% of the public wanting restrictions that are stricter than what we have now. The Democratic Party, we, we effectively have abortion on demand in just about every uh, state in the union, and the Democrats want to push it further. You know, This all got started by those comments from Ralph Northam that to a lot of our ears amounted to a justification of post-birth abortion, that partial birth abortion by itself wasn't, uh, wasn't enough, that actually post-delivery, under certain circumstances, they would allow themselves to be killed a child. This, you know, I understand this has been an impassioned and, and probably the angriest topic in American politics going back to Roe v. Wade in 1973. But at some level, you have to have this question of when does life begin? Some would argue it begins at conception. I know there are some folks who uh, hold strongly to that point of view. Some folks don't. You'd think birth would be it. <laughs> And what made people really un- upset about partial birth abortion was this uh, argument of someone who is partially alive. You're partially a human being, but because that other half of you is is not fully out of the out of the womb, well, in that case, you're you're fair game. You can be killed. It's legal to kill you. You're not really a person yet. And when does personhood begin? When does you start putting that sort of extension? There's numbers I just laid out for you, Greg. Most people are comfortable saying somewhere in the middle there. And a big chunk of Americans are saying, you know what, after that first trimester, that's a living being, you cannot execute it. You cannot go in there and kill it uh, without legal consequences. And, and this is nowhere, this is light years from where the modern Democratic Party is. So, you know, the, the, this, this is a, the, the fact that it lost yesterday is deeply depressing. I do think it's very interesting that in a survey by, I believe it was Gallup, that said uh, the number of Americans identifying as pro-life jumped like 17 points in the last month. Um, if there's any silver lining to an otherwise deeply frustrating set of political circumstances, uh, Greg, particularly what we're seeing not just in Congress, but in the state legislature of Virginia, uh, New York, I believe it was Connecticut or Rhode Island or some, uh, a couple of those New England states. Um, look, there, you know, there are a good number of people who are recoiling from this, and I think this will probably be a big issue next time voters go to the polls. One of the effective moments in the Trump-Hillary debates was when Trump was actually able to turn the narrative of their abortion discussion into putting Hillary on the defensive for her support of late-term abortion, or at least her refusal to legislate against it. And so oftentimes the conventional wisdom suggests that Republicans are smart not to make social issues a big deal. But when the Democrats want to go this far, uh, how smart is it for Republicans to keep pointing this out the closer we get to Election Day next year? Yeah, I was going to say there were two, two, two fascinating facets of that moment in the debate. Some people would argue that uh, that one Trump, the, the, the presidential election, I think it was Ralph Reed said something along those lines, or it was one of the really key moments. One is, let's face it, 
Donald Trump is a billionaire casino owner who's run strip clubs, whose social life is an absolute mess. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that pro-life Christians might look at Donald Trump warily. And yet, there, with tens of millions of Americans watching, he laid out what partial birth abortion does. And the country recoiled. And a lot of Ameri- like two, the American, you know, pro-lifers were like, mm-hmm, we told you. Uh, a significant number of Americans, I think, um, were like, oh, that, that can't possibly be true. Donald Trump doesn't know what he's No, you know what? I say this as a Trump critic. This is one time Trump actually did his homework and accurately described the procedure. And it was so horrifying. Lots of Americans like, no, that can't possibly be true. Um, and it actually left Hillary Clinton in a situation where she didn't, she, she could not go with the standard arguments or all of a sudden the standard arguments, I believe in a woman's right to choose, did not feel sufficient to the moment. And if you'd said in 2016, Hillary Clinton would get uh, utterly defeated on the issue of arguing abortion by Donald Trump, uh, you know, most people would have believed that was a, a far-fetched, an impossible headline um, to ever imagine there. So Again, all Donald Trump had to do to win a great deal of loyalty from a whole bunch of pro-life voters is go out and say what impartial birth abortion does. And, you know, you could very strongly argue he won that exchange. Wow. As we often say when we transition into ZipRecruiter ads, (laughs) you can't hire ZipRecruiter to find you a new United States senator. In fact, you can't even get a new one at least until the fall of 2020, and in some cases with these people, uh, not for almost six more years. And we should point out that every senator running for president or thinking about running for president voted against this legislation. But that doesn't mean that you still can't hire great people for other jobs because hiring is challenging. The good news is there's one place where you can go where hiring is actually simple and it's fast and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And in case you haven't already guessed, that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As the applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so that you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. The first day. You can't beat that. And right now, 3 Martini Lunch listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-I-N-I. ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, Jim, let's move now to Venezuela and our second bad martini, Jorge Ramos of Univision. And I believe he also has a relationship with uh, NBC News or MSNBC in some capacity. Uh, Frequent thorn in the side of President Trump, particularly on the issue of immigration. I think even got tossed out of one Rose Garden press conference. But uh, let's just say the treatment was quite a bit worse as Jorge Ramos and his team tried to interview Venezuelan dictator, president, whatever title we want to throw in there. Nicolas Maduro uh, It was at the palace in Caracas. And we found out last night that uh, Ramos and his team were detained for a couple of hours 
and they had their equipment, meaning the contents of the interview, confiscated. Uh, Back at his hotel, shortly after being released, uh, Ramos uh, talked about how the interview had gone from allegations of fraud and corruption to human rights abuses to even the point where uh, Ramos showed Maduro a video that he took of kids chasing a garbage truck trying to find food. And at the end, I showed him a video that I personally took last Sunday of um, three kids behind a trash truck looking for food. And he just couldn't stand it. He didn't want to continue the interview. He tried to close my iPad where I showed him the video. And then he said the interview was over. But that's not how it ended. They confiscated all our cameras, four cameras, all our video, uh, all our cell phones, and we were thrown out of the presidential palace. But before I left the palace, they took me into a security room with producer Maria Guzman, and they asked for our cell phones. I didn't want to give them my cell phone, so they turned off the light of the room, and a group of uh, agents came in. They took forcefully my backpack, uh, my cell phone. Uh, They did the same thing with with Maria's, and they forced us to give them uh, our passcodes for the cell phones. And they still haven't gotten those things back. They don't have their interview. They don't even have their cell phones. And so the story continues. Uh, Jim, this is obviously the act of a, of a reckless tyrant here in Venezuela. You know things have gone weird when Greg and I are talking about how dare you pick on Jorge Ramos. <laughs> um, look, Bianca, he's not our favorite uh, journalist. I think you know, it's safe to say that he considers himself as much an activist as a journalist. This guy, oh, he's very clear about where he comes from. While Trump may have been able to handle the exchange during one of the press conferences earlier, uh, I don't think there's any dispute that this is a guy who's, you know, believes that there's good guys and bad guys in terms of political parties and has an axe to grind against Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, Jorge Ramos, my hat is off to you because it takes a bit of guts to go up to a dictator and showcase everything the dictator is denying. And it is, you know, absolutely, you know, look, if you're the dictator and you invite Jorge Ramos to, to do an interview, You have the right to say, you know what, this interview is canceled, it's over, I'm out of here. But you don't have a right to detain them. You do do not have to use these kind of police powers and authorities and stuff like that. You don't get to take people's cell phones and cameras and all of that kind of information. Um, You'd like to think that Jorge Ramos and his crew would kind of understand the risks going into interviewing an embattled dictator uh, who may or may not feel like he's got that much left to lose. Um, this could have, you know, thankfully this turned out okay. I'm glad Jorge Ramos and his crew are okay and released, and that they're safe. Uh, I did like the comment from a person on Twitter, uh, Greg, who said that he was really, he kind of was, there's a part of him that was hoping that they detained Ramos longer just so that President Trump could send in the Navy SEALs to rescue him. <laughs> and Jorge Ramos would have to thank President Trump for that. Thankfully, it didn't come to that. And Jim, that dovetails perfectly into our third martini here, where Bernie Sanders was on CNN last night. He's one of the Democrats running for president, of course, now that he's a Democrat once again. Uh, Wolf Blitzer hosting the town hall, and the issue of Venezuela came up. Here's what Bernie Sanders said. Why have you stopped short of calling Maduro of Venezuela a dictator? Well, he, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that the last election was undemocratic. Uh, 
but there are still democratic operations taking place in that country. The point is, what I am calling for right now is uh, internationally supervised free elections. And I do find it interesting that Trump is very concerned about what goes on in Venezuela. But what about the last election that took place in Saudi Arabia? Oh, there wasn't any election in Saudi Arabia. Oh, women are treated as third-class citizens. So I find it interesting that Trump is kind of selective as to where he is concerned about democracy. My record is to be concerned about democracy all over the world. So we've got to do everything we can. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the people of Venezuela who determine the future of their country, not the United States of America. So the guy who honeymooned in the USSR and loved it publicly at the time, before the, uh, the, the wall fell down, the curtain fell down, uh, is now talking about how he's the champion for democracy all around the world, Jim. You know, Greg, let's begin with the fact that, you know, so that's a, this is a, you know, it's not like Venezuela hasn't been in the news lately, right? It's been this slow burn of a crisis down there that's accelerating the last couple of days. The attempts to get Western democratic aid across the border, uh, Maduro, in addition to the troops, apparently has loyalist motorcycle gangs going around villages, uh, terrorizing people if they try to go near where the aid convoys are headed. Um, just your classic autocratic brutalitarian tactics here. Um, and what, you know, what, how far is Bernie Sanders willing to go? Well, he first, he begins with a pause so pregnant, it might as well be the Octomom. Uh, and then finally, <laughs> when he has to gather his thoughts, he's willing to go so far as to call it undemocratic. Oh, please hammer. Don't hurt him. All right. Well, take it easy there, Bernie Sanders. Wow. Wow. Now we've seen Bernie Sanders get really mad. We've seen him go after the billionaires and the big banks. And it was was that an angry answer, Greg? Did you did you sense any outrage in Bernie Sanders' voice? He didn't even use the word Maduro. He could not bring himself to characterize Maduro or his government. The closest he could come to is say that it was undemocratic that last election, as if it was just a minor. Ah, they lost a ballot box or two, as if children were eating from garbage because they were starving so badly. Um, this is you know a very illustrative moment of Bernie Sanders. He gets way angrier at banks much angrier at millionaires and billionaires. Like in today's morning jolt, Greg, I tried to lay out Maduro's sons are accused of trying to embezzle uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from, uh, from state owned oil company. Um, Hugo Chavez's daughter apparently has a couple billion dollars. This too has often been uh, siphoned out of the country into European accounts and stuff like that. Um, you know, Greg, I, I, I suppose the upside is Bernie Sanders finally found some millionaires and billionaires. He kind of likes. Oh, True. Again, we've seen Bernie Sanders angry. There was no anger in that answer when discussing the Maduro regime. And my, my conclusion from that is because Maduro claims to be a socialist, I think, by the way, you could very strongly argue that really at the heart of it, he's a gangster. At the heart of it, he's a thug. At the heart of it, he wants to take from others, keep it for himself and use the money uh, from the oil wealth and whatever industry is, remains in this uh, impoverished country. Uh, and he wants to use it to retain power, and he does not care who gets hurt in the process, right? But even the idiots online will say, well, this isn't true socialism. Bernie Sanders can't even come out and say that. <laughs> if Bernie Sanders still says, well, it's a little bit undemocratic, and, you know, I want free and fair, you know, come on. You know, the, the, in the end, Bernie Sanders holds no anger for the Maduro regime because they claim to be socialists. And if you claim to be socialist, Bernie Sanders just can't get that angry at you. Um, worth noting, I mean, back when I did my uh, 20 things about Bernie Sanders, I think it was the first article in this series that I wrote here. Big fan of Ortega, 
big defender of the Soviet Union. He said, when you see countries in bread lines, at least it means people aren't starving. I mean, Bernie Sanders loved to go out and make excuses for brutal regimes. And the other thing which people forget, you know, he was buddies with lots of folks from the Irish Republican Army. Now, you and I have given Congressman Peter King lots of grief about this. <laughs> but, you know, this, this sense that, like, if there was somebody who wasn't on our side, Bernie Sanders was very quick to say, hey, let's not be quick to judge them. Let's hear them out. There's something good there. But man, you know, millionaires and billionaires, they're terrible. There's no forgiveness for them. Jim, kind of a parallel between our two stories today. On the one hand, you've got Bernie Sanders, who's reluctant to condemn Maduro, no matter how drastic the situation gets in Venezuela. And on the other side, you've got Senate Democrats who are willing to support whatever the abortion lobby wants them to, no matter how drastic the issue. There you go. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Yeah. Not a delightful day today. But the good news is if you have a job to fill, you can go to ZipRecruiter, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. Jim, talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And tune in again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.